is you actually have to look at it and go, all right, am I being told something that sounds too good to be true? It's too simple. It's too easy. Well, maybe it means grow the fuck up a little bit and actually understand that this is rubbish. It, it appeals to your, the, the, I want to do less. And I, you know, the, the whole idea, well, I want to lose the 20 pounds, but I actually don't want to change my behavior. And I still want to eat all the, the garbage that I'm eating and I don't want to be active, but ooh, this, this cleanse promises me, I can, come on, come on. Like, seriously, really? Yeah. I know you want to believe it's true, but we have to stop actually catering to the fact that, you know, people think this is actually a thing. At the same time, we also have to be empathetic to the people who don't fully understand this stuff. We're being misled. Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no bullshit health and fitness podcast. Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck, and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place. Let's Let's go. If you'd like to support us in the podcast, join our Patreon where you get exclusive content, which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym, monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset-based, and access to over 100-plus low-calorie, high-protein, family-friendly meals. These are all designed by a professional chef who is certified in nutrition. These recipes are already in my fitness pal for easy fucking tracking. New recipes are also added each week. We believe that fitness is for everyone. So this is our way of getting you started on your health and fitness journey at a price most everyone can afford. So what the fuck are you waiting for? I'll see you in the Patreon. Andrew. Hello, guys. I'm going to call you the mayor of fitness because that's that's how I feel about you. Andrew Coates is the mayor of fitness in my eyes anyway, but he also writes for T-Nation, Men's Health Magazine, Muscle and Fitness, Barben, Generation Iron, uh, Kabuki Strength, and he is a public speaker and also coach, of course. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks for coming. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, guess I wear many hats these days. Yeah, you do. You are a busy man. You're also a a mentor to other fitness coaches, and it's just incredible how many different things you have your hands on. So how did you get into fitness? I don't really even know if I know that story. I grew up very fortunate that my parents valued physical activity. We were involved in sports when we were kids. We would run around and play baseball in rural northern Newfoundland. There wasn't a lot there. Um, dad bought us hockey equipment, but I never really like took to hockey, which I think he was very secretly glad for. But we, we did get involved in cross-country skiing. So I was actually a very high-level cross-country skier until my earliest of my teens when I gave that up. And then me and my brother got very involved in basketball. And my parents also were a little ahead of, ahead of their time when it came to the way that we approached nutrition. So, you know, our regular meals, we had a healthy breakfast every morning. We had we were able to come home for our lunches because we lived in this rural town. So, you know, I had a homemade lunch, home-cooked dinners. And then on the weekends, you know, we would get our allowance to go have, you know, bag of chips, chocolate bar, a drink. And it was a good balance. And I didn't even understand what we were sort of being taught as kids. And then as you get older and you work in this industry, you understand that not everybody grows up in that environment. And that can actually play a really big role in outcomes later on or how difficult this stuff is. So, of course, again, playing high school, basketball, and then in university, I kind of got away from a, a lot of regular activity, although I walked a ton on campus, so I always stayed fairly lean. And then I got, I would dabble in, try to go to the gym. You know, me and an old university girlfriend would go sometimes, but we weren't super crazy consistent. And then I think at about 24 years of age, I remember, very visceral, I can thank my entire fitness journey and career to probably going to see Return of the King, the third Lord of the Rings movie, which is three and a half hours long. And I entered the theater feeling good. It's on a date. 
And halfway through, I wasn't feeling very good. Two thirds of the way through, I felt like I was dying and then had to like suffer through. I was sweating. I was sick. I felt, felt like that. And so I was pretty sick for, if I remember correctly, about two-ish weeks. I presume it was probably a flu back then. It was long, long before the COVID stuff. I am 45, <laughs> to give you guys context. So this would have been 21 years ago. And I had normally walked around at six foot two and about 180 pounds pretty consistently. And I'd gotten down to 170 after being sick. And I was like, this is no good. I don't feel great. I'm going to get serious about the gym. So I got started and I just went four to five times a week. I started eating more food. And in seven months, I was 210 pounds, fairly lean. You know, everybody noticed it became part of who I was. And I was pretty consistent with it for a few years there. Then I you know, bounced around between things and careers and I just wasn't finding anything fulfilling. So I opened a nightclub, which of course, in retrospect, was fun, but also a disaster in many ways, which led into just like hardcore partying lifestyle stuff that started to compromise and then eventually completely interfere with fitness lifestyles. So eventually I sold my interest, walked away from that and then moved across the country just to kind of change life, got back into the gym. And this would have been about 28 years old. And that just completely changed my health, my, my fitness. And then I was going to this gym for, I think probably almost four years and the staff there would keep bugging me to come and work there as a trainer, which I kept saying, no, no, no. Like, you know, being a trainer has more to do with being able to sell than anything else. And I mean, that's, there's some truth in that and a lot of, a lot of lies, but I eventually said, okay, let's do it. I was, I remember the first week, the end of the first week thinking I'm totally overwhelmed. I can't do this. This isn't going to work, but somehow I stuck with it. And pretty quickly I was assigned to a lot of clients. Other trainers would leave their clients would come to me. Then I started generating floor walk-up business, referrals. My schedule was full within a few months, and it stayed that way uh, the rest of my career. And that all started almost 13 years ago. And I spent six years at a commercial gym. Um, and there are a lot of problems in those kind of environments, the management and whatnot. I dealt with a lot of, of problems in that environment. But it was my livelihood, and I was committed to serving my clients. And I immersed myself in the gym environment, and I made a ton of friends. A lot of my closest friends in the world came out of that. And eventually I had to leave because I was dealing with harassment from other people who were involved in predatory multi-level marketing recruitment schemes, sexual harassment, everything. And of course, I'm an opponent to all those behaviors. I needed to go because I was a threat to them and eventually lies and harassment. I said, enough of this. I'm leaving. My entire clientele voluntarily chose to follow me. And I opened my own business at my friend's gym. He'd been courting me to come over and work contract out of, which is where I'm sitting right now of all strength. So that owner, John, is a good friend of mine and a partner in our conference that we will host again this year in the fall. And along the way, built up my business. Uh, things did really, really well. I met a friend here named Dean Guido. And Beth, I can't remember if you met Dean at, at Coaching Con. Yep. And uh, it was uh, the Fitbit Mastermind. You were there. Yeah. So my good friend, now good friend, Dean Guido, Met him, got to know him a bit. I was dabbling with some YouTube stuff and he turned around and wanted to start a podcast. And so decided to do that. And that was uh, Lift Free and Diet Heart Podcast, which is what it is now. And that's been going for five and a half years. And then that led to a connection with one of the editors at T Nation. I'd already been writing for my website. That editor invited me to come write for T Nation, which is now four and a half years. And that opened the doors to the other writing opportunities. And that's since blown up. And then I started traveling to conferences in 2017. I met a ton of people, ton of connections, love our industry, a lot of great friends. And because I kept showing up and supporting these other events, eventually someone 
whose event I would go to, my friend Tim Arndt in Spokane, he invited me to come speak at one in 2021. And then that just exploded. And then there's been eight to 10 events each of the last two years, which is kind of nuts. I just got an email from a good friend who is doing something and he's like, here, I want you a part of it. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm in. <laughs> if I can find the time. A lot of conferences. I know there's a lot there, but the underlying thing is I fell in love with learning about this stuff. I fell in love with actually helping people. And it's something that I actually more than ever look for too. If you get someone who is an enthusiast in this world and really loves it, sometimes there's someone who has a gift for actually helping other people. You look at someone like Mike Dola with Stronger You and what he built at a Stronger Use. A lot of the coaches, I, I think a fair number of the coaches that came through Stronger You were started as clients first. And then they turned into coaches because they just loved it. They believed in it. Yep. I want to take it back to you growing up in an environment where your parents were active and, you know, you grew up with, you know, eating, you know, good food and things like that. And I love how you talk about, you know, how to get kids into the gym with you. I think that's so important um, that a lot of people, first off, are, are intimidated to go themselves. Um, and so, you know, raising kids at the same time to be active can be, you know, kind of hard. How would you get a parent, A, to get into the gym and to kind of help their child do that as well? So there's a lot of dimensions to this. And what you're alluding to is this post that I keep reusing because it goes mega viral. Jonathan Goodman shared it again today as part of another post. And it's about exposing children to gym environments. And uh, it includes the quote, especially mothers and daughters. And then someone always pops up. And says, why, why emphasis on mothers and daughters? It's like, because you twit, boys and men have not been discouraged from lifting weights for a few generations the way that women have. So we can knock off that ideological policing, you know, tone policing nonsense. You can fuck right off with that shit. We're all trying to help people here, right? I, I hate it when people play status games, you know, on social media, like the pick fights. Like these people are actually like a plague on our industry. Uh, and you can tell who's pulling the scrap versus who's actually out to help people. And anyone listening, like if, if you follow people like that, just unfollow that rubbish and, and, so, and follow the people like, Beth, you don't give a shit about these people. You're just sharing good information. So off track, but so it's sort of because of all of where I am allows kids in here. So some of my clients would bring their kids some of the time because, well, they needed to. Uh, my best friend, uh, would come in here and some of the days that she'd come in here, especially on the weekends, she'd bring her two kids who grew up around me and they would run around and play and they're not doing stupid shit. You got to make sure the kids are not literally swinging from rings and, and running and getting underneath people doing Olympic lifting. Like that's a no, but common sense aside, kids are going to model what their parents are doing. And if you immerse them in this while they're younger, it's a familiar environment. It's, it's safe. It's comfortable. It's normal to them. And as they grow up, if they, or even if they see their parents working in home gyms, home gyms are far more common now, you know, with everything after COVID. So a lot of people have their kids there. So it's more convenient for them to work out at home. The kids are nearby, you know, as long as you're not literally trying to climb all over them while they're lifting. And so we're going to get a, hopefully a generation of more young people grow up where this is quite normal to them. Because what's the alternative? How many people listening have had the experience where, they were overweight, they didn't feel good about their health, and gyms were seen as a scary, intimidating place that were, you know, stocked with powerlifters and bodybuilders and unfriendly people. And you get into those environments, you realize that actually the big guys, they're actually the most welcoming, nicest people. And yes, 
we can always cherry pick or exaggerate or wave around the negative examples. Like people have bad experiences in anywhere you go in life and people will grab onto and wave around these, Oh, gyms are this gyms are that, whatever, because that's part of that person's narrative, but that's actually not helping everybody else who wants to get healthier and stronger. And it's not about, Hey, you guys need to lose weight. No, 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 no. It's, it's like, let's get you strong. Let's get you feeling good and realizing how great this is. And if there's a component of your goal that involves fat loss, whether it's for health or for, you know, Hey, I just want to look good naked, which is a perfectly valid thing. Then usually those aesthetic changes are a byproduct of also getting strong. So I just think it can be a great bridge to the next generation because I'm going to say something that it might be a little controversial or blunt or what have you, but I actually think this generation is lost. And I don't mean that in that for each individual, it is hopeless. I think that statistically as a society, we're not going to see a major reversal on the obesity statistics and the metabolic health statistics. Okay. But each individual can take control of the situation and they can do whatever they can to control their environment. And like I alluded to at the very beginning of this podcast, not everybody has the same advantages. So on one side of things, for each person, if you want a better health outcome, as much as the whole narrative of personal responsibility is an unsexy one, and sometimes people police it, it still underpins everything. And you have to work within the things you can control. And hopefully you can find support and environments that, you know, allow you to create a better outcome. Setting that aside, we can at least do something for the next generation. So if someone struggles to do something for themselves, whether whatever the narrative is, or whether they just do not feel worthy of the effort or the investment in the change, or they just don't feel they have the tools, sometimes a more powerful motivator is to say, well, I don't want my kids to grow. And I'm not a parent, so I can't speak for that, but I don't want my kids to grow up with the same struggles that I had. And you know, it's like there's all sorts of things that get handed down generationally, right? And some of them are good and some of them are bad. But it, all it takes is one generation to break the cycle of something, whether it's complicated things like abuse or alcoholism or any of these things, uh, you know, the education. Um, but also the, the people have been, I've heard this in several places, you know, people are using the phrase term gener generational health. Right. So we think in terms of generational wealth, but there's also a concept now that we're talking about generational health. And there's a lot that parents can do to model these behaviors to make them normal. And, you know, you'll always get the detractor who complains about like, oh, you know, you're teaching kids that, you know, their, their value is in, in how thin they are. No, 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 no. That, that's none of that nonsense. You guys can knock that off, too. I um, mean, but what, what's happening is we're having what's the alternative? And, and I think this one is definitely more moms than dads, although sometimes it's dads. It's not developed by moms. But how many women are using language about negative, uh, negative language about their body image or self-image, about dieting, and how many women are modeling dieting behaviors and unhealthy dieting behaviors that maybe they don't realize the words and the actions are being picked up by their daughters or sons. And then those behaviors become the internal dialogue and narrative and normalized for parents. So if we're not modeling some of these more positive generational health behaviors, well, what are we modeling? And there are some other things, and, and there's skills, there's cooking skills, there's the nutritional environment that you grow up in. Like I said, I was very lucky to grow up in a good one that I didn't even understand as a kid. And now I look back and go, holy shit, I was really lucky. Like, Thanks, mom and dad. So I hope, and when people think about this stuff, and let's say you're not willing 
to move for yourself. Maybe the button that I'm willing to push with you is, are you willing to do it for your kids to give this gift to them for their future and give them skills and normalize a, a different lifestyle for them? Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, as parents, we have to make those sacrifices sometimes, whether it's us being uncomfortable, even if we don't want to, you know, go to the gym or, or go for that daily walk, right? Those are things we talk about all the time that you can do to have that kind of a minimum effective dosage there. And on, on the note of like the model behavior too, that's something that we see, you know, when a new client comes to us quite often is I grew up with the, these disordered eating habits. I was put on Weight Watchers when I was 10 years old and I'm thinking about starting a family or I just had a baby and I don't want that for my child because I know what that did to me. And it's, it's really heartbreaking that it gets started so early. But on that note, then uh, the model behaviors and how not everyone has those model, uh, behaviors modeled for them, you kind of see that as a disconnect in our industry between coaches and the general public with some of the messaging that's out there? Maybe. I think, I alluded to this earlier, I think that some coaches make the mistake of spending more time worrying about what other coaches are doing than, than how they can help people. Okay? We see people policing what other coaches are saying, because whatever another coach is saying does not fit our ideological narrative. Beth, how many times have you been told you shouldn't swear as much oh on my your God. social media? Every day, every day. <laughs> so here's my point. People will self-select the message that works best for them. There is room for the more soft, empathetic side. And quite frankly, I do think your messaging is empathetic. I really do. But I think there's room for a softer message. And I think there is room for tough love. And I mean, my friend Natalia Mella Wilson is a good example of someone who is no bullshit, tough love. She will speak her mind. You know, she's a very, very feisty Brazilian woman who just, there's no fucks given. Or my pal Tanner Shuck, who's a TV Nation guy, he's over in Dubai. And, you know, Tanner's media is going to piss some people off because it, it creeps into some territory. It's, it's language I wouldn't necessarily use or that I wouldn't use. But guess what? There's going to be an audience for it. And if you don't like someone's messaging, go find someone's messaging that you do like instead of trying to police and make things go away that you don't agree with. Does that make sense? So as long as there are coaches who are of service to certain populations and certain type of messaging, and we have enough of it out there, they're going to hopefully, here's one of the things that I actually believe in that. And again, I know I'm talking a little bit about our industry, but hopefully the listeners will gain some insight into this stuff. I sometimes bump up against envy, bitterness, and resentment from coaches who are angry because they perceive that I've been successful with the writing, the speaking, but especially the social media following size, right? They don't like it. And they get really nasty about it. And you can usually tell when people start, you know, making statements like, oh, you know, there's no relationship between the size of someone's following and their credibility. Well, yeah, we actually do know that. But it, the only people I ever say that are people who don't have a social media following, who have either completely suck at branding or who have struggled or have not put the effort in yet. And it's a sour grapes attitude. And it's very important to kind of recognize that for what it is, where they're more concerned with arguing with or attacking or shaming people who are getting building an audience, building a platform with whatever messaging. So my argument is, yes, I think we need to be at least a little thoughtful about who we follow because there are people who are very good at building following uh, and they're grifting, they're sharing this information. There's a lot of rubbish, but there's also a lot of really great people 
like you, Beth, who have done a wonderful job of sharing evidence-based, actionable, tactical stuff that will speak to a lot of people and who've built a larger following. So I actually challenge coaches to go, okay, you can complain about the liver king or that idiot salt doctor or the, the carnivore doctors, you know, the, the, all kinds of, and again, I don't even like complaining about doctors as being a bad guy. Some of them sell out, but then some of them you get like Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, who's, you know, the, the best merger of empathy meets evidence that I've ever seen as an obesity mm-hmm. physician. Right. So if you can find it, and he's done a wonderful job for years, he literally taught people how he has a, a video on how to make Canva graphics back in 2017 to make infographics, which people like him and Sohili Lee and Jordan Syatt and Carter Good all did. I remember those days when that's when I first got on social media. It was like 2018. Yeah, right. I don't know. I remember Jordan Syatt doing like the infographic. It was like infographic central, like Carter Good. And, uh, you know, um, everyone was doing infographics. <laughs> And, and they all built up these really big brands. Now, you know, Jordan, Sohi, and Spencer in particular have incredible legacies as educators. And they build a lot of long-form media. They've done a lot of things that the social media then just is an extension upon, but they're credible. And you look at the kind of impact someone like Jordan is having on the greater industry. So I like to challenge coaches to say, listen, if you have a good message and you want to help more people and you serve a specific audience, you know, it, it's not like you have an obligation, but it can be very valuable if you will learn these skills, consistently show up, and it's a way we help more people. And if you're scrolling through Instagram, you can see one post at a time. And if you're not taking up that space, someone else will, and that other person may not have your integrity, your knowledge base, or your intentions. So for the for the consumers, now I want you guys to kind of be alert to this stuff too. And I, I think anybody who's listening to this, first of all, is going to be a fan of your stuff, Beth. And is probably already a discerning listener, but you know, you've got people in your world who you see sharing rubbish from charlatans. And I know it's frustrating, right? So the best thing you can do is to share Beth or Jordan Syed or Sohi or someone else in our space who does a better job of meeting evidence in in the message that's resonant. Right. And that's the that's one of the ways that we probably help more people is by sharing good media created by people who are quality humans. Well said. When the world feels crazy and chaotic, remember that you don't have to. You deserve to take control of your mental and physical health. And Cured Nutrition is trying to make it easier for you to do exactly that. Cured wants you to feel good about feeling good. So they took their time formulating their serenity gummies. They left out the artificial flavors, sugars, and dyes, and replaced them with ingredients that actually live up to their wellnessy word. Finding calm in this fast-paced world can be very challenging. That's why I use and love the Serenity Gummies. They help to provide a physical, mental, and emotional sense of calm in everyday life. I personally like to take them before a long day of calls and meetings. The Serenity Gummies bring me to a happy place and they prepare me for the day's challenges, while also helping me to serve others to the best of my ability by providing a sense of peace and calmness in my body and mind. Right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to you, our listeners. You can grab a bag of Serenity Gummies for 20% off by visiting www.curednutrition.com CTC and using coupon code CTC at checkout. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com CTC and coupon code CTC at the checkout to save 20%. Protect your peace, Papa Gummy. Yeah, and I think because there's so much information out there, right? How, and this is for like general public, how do people decipher from bullshit information 
between, uh, and then, you know, science evidence-based because I get this from all angles. People are like, I just don't know what to believe. You know, they'll follow people that are saying, don't eat this and don't eat that. And they'll send me screenshots. And what do you think? It's like, if anybody is saying not to eat this, they don't know what they're talking about. But I think like, how do you, how does someone filter all this information that's consistently coming at them? Like you, I guess one would be unfollow. I don't know if there's an easy answer to this because not unlike, you know, food marketing and engineering, which is designed to make, you know, let's look at kids cereal. And I'm not interested in demonizing kids cereal. Like I grew up, I enjoyed my fruit loops on the weekend. We had oatmeal, you know, during the, the weeks, right. Which comes down from your parents. But we know that, you know, a lot of kids breakfast cereals and, and other you know, chocolate bars and, and, uh, and pop and what have you, it's engineered and marketed to be appealing, right? And we know it's winning. And not unlike that, the, some of the bigger accounts who are not evidence-based are engineered and marketed and practice storytellers to maximize reach because they will say things that sound appealing. There's an account that annoys me, I won't name it, that has a fairly large following and if I write a popular post within a couple of weeks, usually there is a rewritten version of that post, including my kids and Jim's one on his feed. And then he will say a lot of very basic formula, but poignant health-based stuff that's quite accurate, which of course is very appealing. And then he'll follow up with a post that says that sugar is worse than cocaine, you know, your end user, which is of course is a ludicrous thing. I mean, like, if you've never tried cocaine, maybe you might believe that, but you know, we'll, we'll leave that at that, right? That's a complicated thing. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got these people who are engineering a message so that way they, they can grow and they can sell their books and they can sell their products and marketing. And on one hand, coaches with integrity need to actually embrace learning how to actually do media better, but with better, more integrity-based messaging. So that's on the coaching side. And for the consumer, Part of it is, it is a duty to educate yourself. And yes, it's hard because chicken or the egg, where do you start? Your Which accounts do you listen to? Because there are accounts that are so hardcore evidence-based, but not necessarily super resonant. And then there's a stuff in the middle of people who say some pretty good stuff. And then they say some, you know, iffy stuff. And they might say that like, it's carbs and insulin. You know, that's, that's the reason for obesity, not because of uh, calories in, calories out. It's like, okay, but everything else they say is like pretty much on point. Uh, what do we do there? And then you get people like the liver king, who I will call out, just selling complete and utter nonsense. I think we have to take a little bit of responsibility for our own outcomes and stop believing the things that we want to hear. And I think that's part of it, is you actually have to look at it and go, all right, am I being told something that sounds too good to be true? It's too simple. It's too easy. Well, maybe it means grow the fuck up a little bit and actually understand that this is rubbish. It, it appeals to your, the, the I want to do less and I... You know, the, the whole idea, well, I want to lose the 20 pounds, but I actually don't want to change my behavior. And I still want to eat all the, the garbage that I'm eating and I don't want to be active. But ooh, this, this cleanse promises me, I can, come, on, come on, like seriously, really? Yeah. I know you want to believe it's true, but we have to stop actually catering to the fact that, you know, people think this is actually a thing. At the same time, we also have to be empathetic to the people who don't fully understand this stuff. We're being misled. Uh, I, I do think it's, it's, big on the coaches side of things to actually just be better at brand and messaging so that way we attract more people. I mean, how many people have told you, Beth, that they found your guys' media and 
but they used to they used to believe in the book Wheat Belly or or some other kind of nonsense. Or they definitely were like they're sitting now watching Oprah and jumping from whatever bullshit fad diet Oprah jumped from to jump from to jump from. And then all of a sudden they just got tired of it, but they found you or they found Jordan or they found somebody else who is very evidence-based, Dr. Mike Isertel, whoever, and things clicked for them. And sometimes it's part of the process. They may have to go through a bit of this stuff before they find a better answer. And then they realize, wait a second, this actually works. I feel better. I'm happier. So I don't think I have a really clear cut answer on how to say to the person, hey, listen, stop believing this nonsense and start believing this stuff, right? Because people want to emotionally hold on to the nonsense that is currently serving them. And then you get this whole other thing. Let's confront this. Some people don't want to change. I mean, they do, but they're unwilling to let go of the story uh, about why they can't, right? And it's still somehow more comforting to live in the unhappiness and the physical discomfort that they're in than to embrace the discomfort of change and the fear of trying and failing, right? And so this is something we don't, we don't talk about is there are, and, and if anybody listening was that person at one point and then discarded it, I want you guys to message Beth and say, listen, like, no, that was me. I, I was living the lie. You know, it was easier to stay stuck where I was because it was an identity that I wrapped as a cloak. I wrapped myself in to protect me from whatever kind of criticism or, or attention that you were, you're ultimately avoiding. And maybe it's because of whatever you grew up within like beliefs you had that were handed down from your parents or, or what have you complicated stuff that I'm not qualified to talk about. This is probably like literal, you know, mental health professional type territory, but we can acknowledge at least that this is a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Now people definitely come to us quite often and say, you know, I, I actually used to not like you, you used to really piss me off and rub me the wrong way, but you know, I've been following you for about a year now and, and you're finally making sense. And I think it really just comes down to just, <gasps> it just, get get tired of being aware they're at essentially because you know their belief system may have gotten them to where they're at and now it's time to challenge that belief system and see okay well i've been doing it this other way with these people telling me to be afraid of all these foods and to, to avoid this and, and do that but that's not working it's got me feeling like a big bag of shit so maybe now i need to look and see what these guys that are swearing at me or or, or whatever are saying because maybe there's some validity to that and there's an admission within them saying that that it was all them and not you. I've had a couple of coaches within the last six months, both tell me that they used to think I was arrogant or basically they sort of saw me in a slightly more negative light, but both openly admitted that it's like, no, it was like entirely about their, their own thing. It was their own narrative. It was their own insecurities that they were projecting onto me because they see that I certainly in one of the cases is very clear that he would aspire to do. And so he's gotten himself straightened out, um, quit drinking. And now he's doing really well with his media and like it just bringing the, the person I knew before this positive energy back. And then the other guy, again, has just really embraced seeing what I've done because I turn around and like to share and help. And it's gone from being something that he saw as a negative to something. He's like, wait a second, there's so much, so many good resources here and, and a willingness to help. And yeah, it can get kind of discouraging if people tell you that, but at the same time, you realize that it's entirely what's going on with them and their own personal narratives. That's what it usually comes down to, for sure, in the end. What mattered is, is they stuck around and there's something about what you guys are doing that kept them from unfollowing you. Right, right. They're still there. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. Where they knew that there's a message that's like, I need this, but I'm not ready for it. And that's okay too. There's a lot of people who they're not ready, but if we're still there, they know we're there. It's about staying top of mind. It's another thing that goes into like what I tell coaches is you just want to stay top of mind to people who don't know they need you yet. They're not ready. But when something happens and God forbid they have a, a health scare within their family or, or their own lives, then you become the person that they go to. And, and my guess is there's someone again listening who's like, oh no, that was me. That happened. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. You just keep showing up and you know, you're so right. And this is something that I learned from Jordan. He's like, you know, someone can be following you for a year or even more until they are actually like, okay, I think I'm ready to start coaching because they don't know you. They're learning from you. Um, you're building relationships They're You're not going to get followers. And suddenly they're going to be like, yeah, I want you to coach me. Um, no, you, as a coach, you have to kind of have to prove yourself in a way, build that community. So people kind of like earn your trust. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just yesterday, Beth, um, I was message, uh, messaging with somebody on Facebook and she said that she's been listening to our, our podcast and, and following our content for a couple of years now, but she hasn't been taking it into action. So this is, this validates what we're all saying here, but she's now at the point where she's finally starting to take care of herself, but she's not doing anything drastic. So she's just literally doing the things that we're talking about. She's like going on a walk and, and journaling now on a daily basis. And she's feeling great about it. She's like, Nope, I'm just going to take it slow. Take my time because I've been trying to do a sprint my entire life. And, and that got me feeling miserable and second guessing myself and having no confidence. And there's something about listening to you guys that made her feel safe. If, if whoever that is, if you're listening, I hope, you continue on with this. She felt safe and it wasn't threatening. And sometimes people need to just tiptoe in, feel safe and experience and go, wait a second, this isn't bad. Oh, I feel really good. I want more of this. Right. Simple as that sometimes. Yeah. Opens up a whole new uh, opportunities. Once, once you're finally ready to, you know, once you're finally ready and you, it's got your your curiosity, when, once you start exploring that and you see what's out there in terms of movement and that, when, what it can do for your life. And when you start just taking a little bit of, I guess, action and, and responsibility and challenging those beliefs, it's very powerful. So, Andrew, as a coach, you, you know, make social media. What have been your struggles with actually making content and showing up in the space consistently as you as you have? There's a few things that I think are important and they're perfect analogies for a person's everyday life who's going through lifestyle change. When I approach social media, I am mostly written based stuff. You know, you get these Twitter graphic type things because it's the easiest thing for me. It's the lowest friction, right? So lifestyle change for you, it needs to be low friction. We have to shrink the change. We have to make sure that we do what we can to change our environment. So it makes making those choices on the spot easier plan and prepare ahead and anticipate. This is a big one. People, they damn well know the weekend's coming every bloody weekend, but oh, they, oh surprise me again. Oh shit. My, my diet fell apart. No, you're giving yourself, here's a piece of blunt stuff. No, you're giving yourself permission to binge on the weekends. Now, binging, complicated eating disorders, et cetera. I use binge in a broader sense, but a lot of the time, no, it's just a, it's every weekend. It's just permission to do something. And it's like, Oh shit, this snuck up on me. No, the fuck it didn't. Right. You knew that the weekend was coming. You just didn't plan ahead. You didn't think ahead. You literally were setting yourself up to do what you really underlying wanted to do on the weekend. Now it becomes shifting that to where, Hey, can I do the things that I really enjoy, but then set some boundaries around it and make the next decision a better one. So, but back on the content creation, there are a lot of people saying, well, you need to do reels. You need to do video. Beth, you're great on video. 
right? A lot of people do video really well. And that actually has very, very serious viral potential. Certainly if you're going to go onto TikTok, which is where you've had that probably the biggest growth and then use the same formula on reels. But your audience is going to be trained to interact with the kind of media you keep throwing at them. And your audience has largely been an audience that self-selects to no-nonsense, blunt, in-your-face, swearing, video-based content. Whereas mine is actually quite different. Now, there's a ton of overlap between the people who like your media and who like mine. But mine is the, the words. The idea is the forefront. A little picture of me, my name's on it. So this, you know, it brands around me. But I find writing much easier. And then I can I re, reuse some ideas after months just because they're popular, as opposed to me putting out a video. And for you, there's not much friction of popping up a phone and just recording something. You've talked about this before, where you'll just have an idea in your head, you'll say something you think is stupid, and then it turns out it's a viral video. For me, there's a lot of like friction when it comes to, to doing video stuff. So but where I draw ideas from is my everyday experience, a client conversation, you know, the questions that we answer all the time, the interactions on social media. I may be responding to a comment someone has left on a post and my response is like shit i'll literally screenshot it like i gotta come back to that because that's a post in itself so you train yourself to know and anybody can do this you train yourself to to look for the ideas and then carve out a little bit of space and time just to write in formula you know to figure i don't like the word formula but to figure out how to present it which is one of my my favorite things and i genuinely think one of my skills that makes the the ideas pop off the page is the way that you express them but I started doing this stuff in late 2019. And before that, I was inconsistent and haphazard with my Instagram social media. And it wasn't something I paid attention to. And I probably had the narrative that I very much believed I wasn't the sort of person who could develop a large social media following, right? I definitely believed that at some point. So it makes it easy to dismiss this whole sort of thing. And then I decided with the writing and the podcast and, and whatnot, I said, like, All right, I need a social media presence consistency that complements the other pieces. And yes, the goal was to grow, but I remember thinking, you know, I started with 3,000 followers on Instagram in late 2019, early 2020. And over five months, I gained 900 followers in five months. Cool. Not bad. So I kind of did the math on oh, two years and I'll be at 10,000 followers. Okay, cool. That'd be good. 10,000 would be great. Of course, the pace picked up. I had Jordan Syed and Mike Isertel sharing a lot of my stuff and driving followers to me. And so I hit 10,000 in one year. And then the second year was 35,000. The third year, it went to 65. And then it actually, hold on, no, no. Then it went from 35 to 95. So I gained 60,000 that year. And then now we're, we're even more. But I didn't set out thinking, ooh, I'm going to see that level of growth. I just focused on the process and every day. All right, let's just write something and share it. And if it does well, great. And if it doesn't do well, I'll pay attention. I'll learn from it. I get a break from interacting with stuff. But learning the lessons and the practice, practicing and refining the process. And my my audience is highly engaged with that type of content. If I throw up a reel, they would probably just be like, what the hell's going on here? They probably wouldn't even engage with it very much. So I found a process that works for me. And there's not just one way. But the the generation of ideas is essential. So the way I have things to share. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah. For me, I, I like how you, you're doing like the lowest, but like, what is easy for you? What are you good at? And that's how you show up. And for me, like I right now, cause I'm not going to say I'm not a good writer, but I haven't been one that's been practicing. So I'm not really a good writer right now. And so for me to do threads even is a step for me to actually dip into the writing because I started out creating videos. And so for me to go into actually writing is intimidating. I can relate in that way of showing up where you're good at. 
And then also kind of like dipping in the other side of trying to write, or although I would love at some point to be better at, at writing. Do you write captions for your videos? I write all of them. Yeah. Good. So you're writing. Okay. So there's also a narrative there too. And it goes to the person who is listening about the narrative right. you yourself about <laughs> what we struggle at. Oh, I'm, I'm not a good cook. Every time you use language that describes what you are or are not good at or who you are or who you're not, it's, it's a fixed mindset and it's a narrative that keeps you in place. Now, if it's a positive skill, if you, if you read a book like Atomic Habits, which is actually the best treatment of this, uh, you know, he uses a lot of different things in there. One of the best analogies is every action is a vote for the person you want to be. And he talks about identity. And so one of the ways that we make healthy lifestyle behaviors stick is we develop an identity around being a healthy, active person, right? Uh, you know, a strong person. So we want to foster that. But then if we look at the things that are the identities, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not a writer. Oh, I can't cook. Oh, I'm not a person who works out. Oh, I, I'm struggling at this. Oh, I, I couldn't learn a second language. Oh, I, I'm, I suck at music. To a point, yes, there are elements of talent, but the, the myth of talent has largely been debunked through a lot of different books that have, especially through the lens of athleticism or other high level skills. It's really a function of deliberate practice. And there's a lot of nuance to that. And you can get into the stuff in books like uh, The Talent Code or The Goldmine Effect or even deep work by Cal Newport. If you're really interested in that specific topic, that'll go into it. But it becomes noticing when you're using negative self-talk and, and you know, this will get into a lot of Brene Brown's type stuff where de delineating between guilt versus shame. Guilt is, I did a bad thing. I, uh, I binged again. I ate a whole bunch of chocolate. I shouldn't have done that. That, that was a bad thing. Versus the person who says, I am a bad person. Like, there, there is no de delineation between the act and you as an identity. And so the person like, oh, I suck. I'm a failure. You know, I, ca I can't stop from, from eating this way. And if we notice the way that we use that language, try to catch yourself. And it's not about berating yourself or further shaming yourself for using, quote, shame-based language, right? So the, the guilt, guilt is fine. I don't give a shit if someone feels a bit guilty about doing something bad or stupid or whatever. That's fine. In fact, if anything, if you can use it to motivate you to not do it again, I'm okay with that to a point, right? If it's an internal dialogue, as long as you can separate who you are as a person from the action that you've done. But if you are linking you as a person, your identity and the negative action that you want to change, we first have to start with changing the behavior, noticing the way that we use that language about, oh, I am a, I am ugly or I am stupid or I am incapable or what have you. Just catch yourself. And the first thing is, is try to use that language less and be alert to it. Because also going back to the whole thing, if you've got kids around, they're also hearing that stuff and they're picking up on those narratives. And that's a really good incentive to work on it. And if you notice that you're thinking it, thoughts are just as powerful as words, right? And uh, I think also people say these sort of things to themselves, a lot of negative self-talk. We have this belief that well, you know, I'm building armor and I'm protecting myself for when the world, someone says something mean. People, yeah, sure, we encounter negative shit once in a while, but overwhelmingly, you are your own worst bully. You are bullying yourself of, of an order of magnitude far greater than anything that the world collectively will ever say to you that you'll interact with. And your soul and your psyche cannot differentiate between what you're saying about yourself and what other people when, when you're hearing it externally. 
so you're literally beating yourself down. And this whole idea that, oh, no, you're just toughening yourself up um, for the reality of the world. That's a complete rubbish narrative. It's lies. It's nonsense. So I think it's a very powerful exercise to be alert to the way that we use language, negative self-talk about ourselves, and then gradually try to say, no, I'm not going to talk about myself that way. Or, or to shift it from, I am bad to, okay, I did a bad thing. I don't want to do that again, right? Because I, I am bad means by default, you're giving yourself permission to continue to do that thing and not take responsibility for change. It's also another part of this. It's permission to not change. And most people, this may lack empathy, but it's honest. Most people are giving themselves permission. They're taking themselves off the hook because it's easier. I'll give you a great example of this. You know, every New Year's, the person who makes the New Year's resolution, right? And they make some outlandish, unreasonable resolution. I'm never going to eat chocolate again. I'm never going to drink alcohol. I'm going to completely change all of my nutrition. I'm going to eat clean. For someone who doesn't even necessarily have these skills at abundance, I'm going to go to the gym six days a week, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course, by the middle of February, statistically, a lot of these, these resolutions have failed. What people do is they give themselves an unreasonable and unachievable goal. That's that subconsciously they know it was impossible. So then they go and they make the effort. And then when, when it breaks down and then they, they can't continue to white knuckle their way through it, they say to themselves, see, you know, you just prove that you can't do it. You're not that kind of person. I am not someone who can eat healthy. I'm not someone who can work out. And it alleviates temporarily the emotional discomfort of the unhealthy lifestyle behavior that they know deep down doesn't feel good and they're not happy about and they're not confident. But you gave it a good try. I proved that I can't do it. Therefore, emotionally, you know, I'm off the hook for a little while until the dissatisfaction builds up to the point where they try the same thing again. And if anybody listening has ever had that experience, just ask yourself, is that kind of what the narrative was? And if you can call bullshit on yourself and go, yeah, that was me, but now you're different. Well, you know the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I also like what you were saying too. I'm going to back up a little bit about your analogy for your social media and the struggles there and how I, I think this can really apply to um, our listeners as well about how you it was trial and error for your content. And then you weren't focusing on the end result, which was growing the social media and end number, but really you were focusing on the process and the journey and just getting better at that. If we could just shift our mindset there too, to, to stop worrying about the, the, the that 20 pounds or, you know, running that 10 minute mile and instead focus on, you know, maybe we're going to go walk for one block before we can run that, that mile, you know? Um, I, I think that would help a lot of people too, if we, they could start understand that. Mm-hmm. And it entirely is about uh, looking at behavior goals, process goals versus outcome goals. Now it's not to say that there are not situations where having a clear outcome goal is, is a bad thing. It's just, I mean, it certainly depends on your skill level for something too. This is something that Renaissance periodization do really well in their nutrition certification, which I got to beta test. So now I'm doing the full thing and they've, it's the best treatment I've ever seen of this. But at its essence, if we focus on the behavior in front of us, and most trainers talk about this, and most clients, and most people understand it, but it is worth drilling down on. Yeah, if we focus on the next step in front of us versus the big overarching you know, mountain we're trying to climb, taking the next step is very actionable, whereas you know, getting to the top of the mountain from the, the base seems completely insurmountable. So yeah, so focus on the behaviors. And if you consistently show up with those behaviors all the time and make those behaviors part of who you are, right? It's part of your identity because this is the other thing. We default to 
behaviors that are in line with who we see ourselves to be. If we think we are someone who can't work out, it doesn't eat healthy, guess what? When you're tired, when you're stressed, you're going for, for fast food and you're sitting on the couch as a default setting. Whereas how many people, I mean, yes, we know this can get taken a bit too far, but um, I'm going to come back to this in a second because actually I think it's a very valid point. The people who, when they're stressed out, then they, they go hit the treadmill or they go you know, work it off in a weight session. And that's the default setting. Now, can that become problematic? Yes. There is a growing trend in our industry. And the listeners, I want you guys to be alert to this, where well-intentioned or status-seeking coaches are grifting on the narrative that of the dangers of working out too much or the, you know, that, that, that sort of worst case scenario. We know that eating disorders are a reality in our world, okay? They're not uncommon. And those are probably more perpetuated by societal expectations and you know, beauty magazines and be, mo behaviors modeled by parents, all this sort of stuff. And we can definitely see that the person who's already maybe prone to this sort of thing or wants to enter like fitness competitions for the wrong reasons, you know, certainly I think that there can be an element within the fitness industry that can worsen or perpetuate this stuff. But I'm noticing now that there are fitness professionals who are grifting on this whole narrative about the dangers of, you know, exercising too much or trying to eat too clean. If you're familiar with the term orthorexia, while these things are relevant and we want to be alert to them, the far greater danger in a society is the obesity epidemic and the overall poor metabolic health of our society. And those two things are not as a one-to-one -one ratio, there is a strong relationship with it. There are people who want to deny that. That's not true. So be alert to this because people are branding around it because there are people that want to be fed this message that, oh, oh, it's bad to exercise. Oh, it's, it's bad to worry about eating too healthy. And let's put it this way. 50% of the population is not walking around with an eating disorder at least in, in that traditional sense, because if you want to look at it through a lens, I mean, you know, poor metabolic health can be seen as its own eating disorder on the other side of stuff. And, and some there, there's a relationship there, whether it's binge eating disorder or whatnot. And, it, and I don't want to diminish the dangers of this, but what I want to say is just be a little bit wary of the intentions of the people who are discouraging healthy lifestyle behaviors or policing people who encourage healthy lifestyle behaviors because of I think a lesser evil worst case scenario that is not the not the biggest problem within our, within our society. This is something that requires nuance. And I want to be very careful how I say this, but I have noticed a trend and I'm not singling out one individual. Uh, and I think there are people who are, are very good with integrity and have a similar message. But I'm also noticing that there are people who built followings and brands on being lean and shredded and now are turning around and, you know, condemning that sort of thing. And it's like, I think it's a little bit disingenuous to have built where you are one way and then turn around and, and demonize the same behavior that, that put you, gave you the platform that you have. And I think you can pivot and recognize there's a lot of people who will say, Hey, you know, I wasn't my happiest or I wasn't my health this year. Actually, I'll give you a good example of someone who does it really well. Molly Galbraith actually just put up a post and she shows how like there's you, there's you can't tell how healthy someone is by looking at them. And she shows when she was leaner and she talks about how the behaviors that went into that 
she was, you know, physically unhealthy. She was mentally unhealthy. And now she turns around and, you know, she feels better. She feels stronger. But I'll also say that Molly Galbraith is someone who built her following and reputation, not upon, you know, a, like, like a rip rip physique at all. She's someone who built it upon advocating for women and strength and healthy lifestyle behavior and, and a lot of other stuff and, and education and supporting women in the industry. So she's done it in a way and she's got the credibility to deliver that message where I think, think some other people, I think it's a little bit disingenuous. And I hope that nuance is clear. I'm always one of the good ones. I'm doing uh, the Girls Gone Strong menopause course right now. And quite frankly, I'm blown away with just how much work and effort they put into it. Uh, it's really, really good. So if someone's interested in that, I mean, they sold out of the first one, ran out of textbooks. That's awesome. Mad. Yeah, good problem. I did her mini course, which was actually free. And I learned a lot just from that. Yes, they have a whole bunch of mini courses. I yeah, know it's She's so great. Who wants to be an OBGYN. And so I put her onto the Girls Gone Strong free course uh, resources. And so she's really excited because, uh, you know, one of my frustrations is if I have a pregnant client and they go to the doctor and the doctor, you know, is certainly, and again, doctors, it's hard for them to know all these things. It's not to demonize the doctors, but if the doctor turns around and says, oh, don't work out, the doctor is covering their ass. It, it is not healthier for a pregnant woman to not work out. In fact, it's actually one of the best things you can do unless there is literally a contraindicated issue. Now, we, we're out of time. We got to wrap up. I got to get to a client. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. I want to talk to you at some point soon about your vinyl collection because I have one too. So on another date, I love watching your stories when you get a new (laughs) um, vinyl. I'm like, yes, go Andrew. But anyway, um, it was great to chat. You guys are amazing. Thank you for having me. I hope this was thought provoking. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Andrew. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As always, we appreciate you and thanks for being here.